everyone, and welcome back to The Extras. I'm Sam. And I'm Jack. And I'm Mike. Really good to be back with you here. It's a much warmer Tuesday than it was last this time last week. Hallelujah. It's, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's balmy and comfortable outside <laughs> as opposed to freezing and rainy. And uh, Jack, you're a little bit better, a bit more healthy, not croaking this week. Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit better. You might hear a couple of coughs still. Yeah. But yeah, not feeling too bad. Good to see you back on your feet. <laughs> uh, we're back here, um, here on The Extras, we... We love answering questions from God's Word, the Bible, and uh, we, we, our pattern is to, to respond to all the questions that come in in the various ways on a Sunday, whether that's on um, Connect Cards or on text messages or other means, and uh, there's some really good ones this week. Um, might start with you, Jack, actually, uh, before we get to the questions, can you just remind us where we were on Sunday in God's Word, looking at Genesis uh, 18, 19, remind us. Yeah, a challenging part of God's Word, for sure. So we saw God come and speak to Abraham, come and start to give Abraham a bit of a feel for his plan going forward, particularly how that concerns the city of Sodom. Abraham's there pleading for this sinful city, pleading that, you know, God, are you, are you really going to destroy it? What if there are righteous people in the city? And we see these angels go into Sodom. We see this, this terrible set of events happen with the, the whole city of Sodom wanting to come to Lot's house and sexually abuse these angels. We see Lot, wanting, you know, in kind, responding with wanting to give up his daughters to them. Really awful stuff, showing us the depths of human sin. And then we see God destroy this city. We see his just, righteous anger against sin poured out on the city of Sodom. Even in the midst of that, there's this amazing picture of mercy as Lot is you know, literally dragged by the hand out of the destruction and brought safe because of God's mercy shown to him. So yeah, big stuff, really big stuff. Lots of questions, obviously, coming out of all of that. Because <laughs> yeah. we covered a big chunk, didn't we? Two whole chapters, we went big picture. And so this is really helpful that you've asked questions about some of the details. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and that's good because that's right, on, on a Sunday we only can, can't cover everything and there's a lot of detail in these chapters and... Uh, Hence, some really good questions that have come up, and we're going to do our best to try and uh, move through them this afternoon. Um, so, kick off the first one here. Um, there are these three angelic beings, men, something in, in chapters <laughs> 19 and 20. Um, who are they? Are, are they symbolic of the Trinity, or are the other two angels that seems to be mentioned at one point in uh, in chapter 19? And just help us get our head around the, the nature of these two beings. Um, I think to start with, the I mean, the big thing I want to say is, yeah, I don't think this is the the Trinity on display here, but we've got to get it from the text, right? We've got to look at what it says. So what happens? That 18 verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. That's the first thing you see. And the next verse, Abraham looked up and there's these three men standing there. So you could start to think, oh, okay, is this God appearing? Mm. And he appears as three men. That, that seems to be the start of what's going on. And it is kind of slippery, like sometimes all three of them seem to speak, sometimes just one of them speaks. It's quite a complex picture of this appearance of God, but I think it does get clearer as the chapter goes on. So if you look at chapter 18, verse 22, uh, the, the men turn away and go towards Sodom, but Abraham remains standing there before the Lord. So you have this like little split up where it seems like two of them go off and one stays behind. Chapter 19, the start of it, the two angels arrive in Sodom, which I take it is the two same people. So it sounds like what's happening is three men appear to Abraham. Along the way, Abraham realizes, okay, one of them is God himself. The other two are angels. Does that sound Yeah, right? and when they appear in 19, they're sometimes called angels and sometimes called men. And mm-hmm. so that kind of adds to the complexity too. But also the mystery and the kind of the intrigue of the whole thing of how God can appear in human form. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, so possibly not 
the Trinity, um, although God is Trinity. Yeah, that's um, right. And there's a follow-up question from, from someone else here um, uh, about that. I guess it's probably prompted by the, the sort of some of the, mm. the intrigue and the, the, the complexity in this passage um, about the Trinity. Just more generally, why did God create kind of this complex system where he is three in one? Wouldn't it just be easier if he just appeared as one to us? <laughs> Wouldn't that make life easier? Why did he create it that way? Yeah, I mean, great question, and if you're wrestling with this, you're certainly not the first person in Christian history to <laughs> wrestle with the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and yeah, I think not at all a silly question, like, I mean, it's worth saying, there have been lots of people throughout Christian history who've seen this passage and seen Abraham speaking to these three people and seen echoes of God in Trinity there, so yeah, definitely a good thing to raise. I think the text tells you that's not exactly what's going on, but yeah, I mean, while we're talking about it, the Trinity, absolutely. I mean, what I want to say is... God hasn't deliberately made things harder for us. Like, God isn't the one who created this idea of Trinity. The thing that the Bible tells us is that God is Trinity. And he, God is eternal. He's always been there. He, he is who he is. He hasn't kind of deliberately made himself more complicated. He's just telling us who he is. And who he is is big. Like, this is the infinite, eternal God of the universe who is massive and far above us and far more complicated than we could imagine. He gives us this window into who we are and I mean sorry in, 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 into who he is and mm-hmm. we in our little finite human brains just we struggle <laughs> I struggle we all struggle to get to grips with that but God isn't making this harder he's actually giving us a window into himself and his being and who he is and I mean with the person of Jesus coming to planet earth we get the clearest picture of who God is he mm-hmm. is the revelation of God most clear to us and that's one of the beauties of scripture isn't it is that God reveals himself kind of progressively and unfoldingly and uh Yes, sometimes it can seem complex, but actually you can see God most clearly in the person of Jesus. And so you want to know who God is? Look to Jesus. Mm, yeah, okay, that's helpful. Um, okay, so just coming back into these characters back um, that, that appear in, in uh, these chapters, it feels like, uh, well, it says that uh, one of them, the Lord, stays with Abraham, and Abraham sort of has this one-on-one time with God, <laughs> just the two of them chilling, mm. shooting the breeze, while the other two... <laughs> Um, seems to be the angels, the two men. Um, they're the ones that go to Sodom and Gomorrah, while God seems to stay with Abraham. Why, do, why does God send the angels or the men um, to, to sort of do that work of destruction, and why doesn't God go? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think the text gives us the full answer. Uh, chapter 18 says that the Lord appeared and comes down to see if the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are as bad as reported. And uh, he gets kind of close to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then interacts with Abraham and then sends the two angels off to get perhaps an even closer look. Now, it's not that God's short-sighted, of course. God knows everything. God, you know, can tell. But in kind of the presence of God via the angels within the town of Sodom and Gomorrah gives him a closer look. And, of course, when the angels slash men do come to Sodom, they treat even them wickedly. Um, And so this is just um, God kind of being... (laughs) uh, one sense kind of thorough mm. in coming down in another sense kind of being relational in the sense of kind of wanting to experience um, how bad it is himself uh, so that he will be the God who does just and uh, won't sweep away the righteous with the wicked I think yeah I think that's right I think justice is really the heart of it yeah, obviously God knows what's going on in Sodom he is perfectly within his rights to just you know start the fireworks from basically verse 1. Like, he knows what's going on. He knows punishment needs to happen. But this seems to be 
a demonstration of God's justice. Like God kind of gives Abraham the chance to challenge him and say, God, are you going to do what is right? Are you going to be just? And then the fact that he goes and sends the angels in to confirm it. Like, yeah, I don't think he's telling God anything he doesn't already know, but I think he's showing to the world that, yeah, God has really clearly done the hard yards. Like, this is a a thorough investigation. And I'm not 100% sure on this, but I I think maybe what's going on is there's this idea in the Old Testament law that you need two witnesses to Mm. establish, like, the truth of a, a court case. And... Part of me wonders if that's what's going on. That's why, is that why there's two angels? Like, mm. this is God saying, look, we've got the kind of full legal apparatus here, so everyone is like, really confident that this decision is totally just. That's nice. what Abraham is challenging God on, and he's showing that. I think that's what's going on. Mm. Okay, okay. Um, now, we arrive, the narrative arrives in Sodom itself, and there's this horrible scene where the, the men of the town, from, from the youngest to the oldest, they all turn out en masse, and they... They demand to, to that Lot brings these men outside, and they they effectively want to gang rape these these two visitors. Mm. Um, so it's an awful scene, mm. um, but it is focused a lot on the actions of the men. Um, what about the women in that space? Um, was it just a city full of wicked men, uh, and the women were fine? And does that mean, therefore, that the, that the, when the city was destroyed? that perhaps innocent women and children even mm. um, were, were destroyed in there? or were there, was, Is there a distinction made because of the focus on men? Just help us understand this from a sort of both genders point of view. Mm. Yeah, I take it when uh, Abraham's bartering with God at the end of chapter 18 and, you know, what if there's 50 righteous, 45, 40, so on. Um, I think it's talking men and women. Mm. Uh, it doesn't say any gender specific. Um, and so God is looking for righteous men and women in Sodom. Uh, when you arrive in Sodom in chapter 19, the focus is sharply on the wickedness of the men. Mm. Uh, women aren't specifically mentioned. Um, does that mean we uh, conclude that the women were righteous? Well, I don't think the text can allow us to go there um, quickly at all um, because God is doing what is right and he's judging and is he finding anyone righteous? The answer seems to be no. And then perhaps you could back that up with the fact that when Lot's women, i.e. his wife and his two daughters, when we meet them later in the chapter, they seem to exhibit behaviours and attitudes uh, consistent with Sodom um, in terms of their worldliness and their sexual perversion. Um, So again, I think that helps us to see that this is not just the problem with the men and their righteousness slash wickedness, but women as well. Yeah, there's a verse later on in the Bible, the prophet Ezekiel, you could look up Ezekiel chapter 16, if you wanted to check it out. Ezekiel draws out this bigger picture of the sin of Sodom and says this is a city full of people who are haughty and proud, there's there's no kind of gender specific language there from what I remember, and I think there's a bigger picture than just this one event on this one night, and though the women aren't all explicitly there in chapter 19, you look at what the whole Bible says about Sodom, you think about the justice of God and everything that's on display here. I think the the message we meant to take away is this is a whole city mm. completely godless and utterly deserving yeah. of judgment. And, and even the way that the men are described, it's from the youngest to the oldest. But I think am I right, Jack? You're the, you're the more Hebrew scholar than I am. Um, but it's it's even it's the little boys through the old men. It's it's sort of that that inclusiveness yeah. that even the children are are caught up in this sexual depravity in this city. Is that fair to say? Yeah, there's a Hebrew word that means basically like a young lad. So mm. chapter 19 verse 4 says, from the young lads up to the, the elders, you know, yeah. the old men. It's a really comprehensive description there. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, 
what happens then is God, in His mercy, saves Lot and and, and those kind of connected to him, his, his sons and his daughters-in-law, and um, oh, sorry, daughters and sons-in-law. Um, these sons-in-law of Lot, however, they're marked out as not believing Lot when he they they, they laugh when uh, they're told that the city's going to be destroyed. And there's questions come in that sort of asks if, if they don't believe and they've got sort of the angels in their presence. Um, would we be any more likely to believe him? I mean, if we wander around and say, look, judgment is coming, um, the world's going to be destroyed, repent, um, are, we, are we any more likely to believe that message today than, than them? Yeah, another good question. Like, I mean, you talk to people about judgment and I think sometimes the response today is laughter and ridicule. In some ways, the further we get from from when Jesus was here in time, the more ridiculous it looks like. You know, you hear people... I'm sure you hear your friends say things like, oh, it's been 2,000 years, you know, how long are you going to have to wait? Ha, ha, ha. The interesting thing is that I think, if anything, the Bible tells us that we are more culpable than the people of Sodom were, like like the sons-in-law. If we hear the warning of judgment and we scoff, of it, scoff, scoff at it, we are more responsible for that because we have more information. Like the way Jesus puts it in his ministry, there's one point in Matthew chapter 11 where he starts denouncing the towns where he'd been doing miracles because people saw Jesus himself come and they didn't repent at that. And Jesus says, he says, and you, Capernaum, that's one of those towns, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Jesus says, if Sodom had seen Jesus, they would have repented, you know, and God wouldn't have had to destroy that city. Mm-hmm. But we, we've seen Jesus come. We've heard what he had to say. If we don't repent, if we scoff at judgment, after he's been, we are far more condemned than even Sodom was. And so I guess at one point we could get a bit uh, downhearted about this, like, you know, if the Lot's sons-in-laws didn't believe, there's no way our friends will. And yet, um, what this should do for us is not make us despondent, but should drive us to prayer. Mm. Um, Because the only chance that anyone's got to repent and believe is if God does a work in them. Mm. And so as we seek to share the gospel with our friends... Um, we shouldn't be um, so pessimistic that we won't tell them, but we should be optimistic as we pray that God would soften hearts and um, bring people from darkness to light as we share the gospel with them. And so, yes, the people of Sydney are pretty unlikely, just as the people of Sodom were, but we have the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. We have prayer. We also have a God who actually wants to reveal himself, wants to make himself known and doesn't want anyone to perish. And so, yep, it's unlikely, but let's keep doing it. Let's go make disciples. Amen. I mean, on that, um, God does save Lot and Mm. and family. Um, The question here, though, why them? I mean, they seem just as sinful, just as much part of Sodom and Gomorrah as those who are destroyed. Why does God choose them? Yeah, verse 29 is your answer. Um, where it says God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the middle of the destruction when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Um, So why does God save Lot and family? Because of their connection to Abraham, the man of blessing. And so as God remembers Abraham and the blessings and the promises that he made through Abraham to bless him and his family and the world through them, that's why God... God rescues Lot. He has to be merciful to him. He has to drag him out kicking and streaming. And he does that as he remembers Abraham, not so much as he looks at Lot's righteousness. 
even though Locke was righteous according to 2 Peter 2. Yeah, I think that's worth reflecting on, because I think that shows you part of the complexity of Lot and this whole account. Like, is Lot righteous? Like, that's one of the big questions I came to this Mm. passage with. You could look at, you know, all right, points for and against. Like, 2 Peter 2, (laughs) the Apostle Peter says Lot is righteous, and he's the inspired author of Scripture, so... Hard to argue. Indeed, yeah, that's right. And then I think you see, I mean, in the portrayal of Lot in chapter 19, he's, he's distinct from Sodom. Like, he's not exactly mm. the same as the evil people of Sodom. Like, mm. they want to rape the angels. Whereas Sodom, sorry, whereas Lot, the way he responds to the angels, you know, he's out there, he greets them, he's welcoming them into his home, he's showing hospitality. And at that point, he looks the same as Abraham. Like, he does the yes. same kinds of things that Abraham does at the start of chapter 18. Points against, yeah, obviously he did a pretty despicable thing with his daughters he's still there you know clinging to Sodom like doesn't want to go it's a very mixed portrait and the only way I've been able to reconcile it is is to see these references to Abraham Lot being part of the people of Abraham I think the 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 suggestion is Lot still has this scrap of faith in Mm. the God of Abraham all the way through it and in the same way that Abraham is righteous because he believes that's chapter 15 verse 6 Lot seems to cling to God just enough in some feeble, faulty way that God looks at him and, and he's a righteous man and he pulls him out of the judgment. That's the whole point. Is God going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? No. Lot makes it out. But he's not righteous completely and holy and, you know, upright, blameless in himself. Not at all. He's, he's clinging to God in this faulty way, which is comfort to us because that's what my faith is like. Yeah, and I guess in many ways we're like Lot, aren't we, sort of? mixed up by the city, living by its values, Mm. clinging on to faith in God, but sometimes more influenced by the world around us than we even realise. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so it's good news. Uh, God is gracious. Mm. All right, uh, on to a bit bit more with Lot. He's dragged out physically by the wrist by these um, angelic visitors. Um, His wife doesn't make it. She looks back. But then Lot uh, leaves and sort of bargains with the angels... Um, but he doesn't go back to Abraham. He goes to this place called Zoar and lives in a cave. Why doesn't he just go to be with Abraham? If, if Abraham's the, the man of blessing, the way to kind of be, you know, counted righteous, get back to that. You, you sort of feel like that'd be a good call? Yeah, a, a huge mystery. I mean, consistent though, Lot is. That sounded very Yoderish, didn't it? <laughs> consistent though, <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't know where that came from. Lot is consistent. Yeah. Uh, in that. Uh, uh, I mean, Abraham already saved a lot once. Remember, in chapter 14, brings him out, saves him as a, a prisoner of war. And you kind of think, well, why didn't Lot go with Abraham then? Because, of course, the next time we see Lot, he's back in Sodom. Why did he go back to Sodom? It's a huge mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes to the cave, or goes to Zoar, because he thinks it's safer. And again, he kind of bargains almost with God, a little bit like Abraham in chapter 18. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and so, yeah, he goes for a safe place, but of course he doesn't stay there long, so obviously it wasn't as good as he thought it was. So again, perhaps Lot's judged by appearances and got it wrong again. Mm. So he's consistent, the old Lot. Mm. Um, yeah, but that is, a like, why not go to the man of blessing? Um, I have no idea. Mm. And I take it, even though the angels don't say this, I think that's what they're telling him to do. When, when they say flee to the mountains... Like, who is in the mountains? It's mm. Abraham. Like, mm. the you know, we saw back in 18, you have this language of the angels look down on Sodom. Sodom's in the valley. Abraham's up in the mountains. I I think reading between the lines, they're saying, go back mm. to Abraham. Mm. And Lot just seems not to want to. Mm. It's a bit of a sad ending for him, really. Like, 
Like, this is the last time Lot appears, right? This is the end of Lot's story yeah, that's in the book it. of Genesis. So, even though God, there's this glimpse of the grace of God and his rescue, the, it seems like the bad choices that Lot's made all the way along end him in a pretty terrible place. Yeah. Okay. Um, chapter 19 finishes with uh, this little sort of stray reference about uh, place names and then talks about how, how they're still today called, called the same thing, verses 37 and 38. Um which sort of seems to give you a bit of a hint as to a bit of an authorial comment there. Um, when is that today? Does, it, does that make sense there? Mm. Today it's still called this. Uh, when was today, when was that written? Yeah, so I take it this is the, the author of the book of Genesis speaking to his present day readers looking back on the events of what happens in Genesis. So yeah, I mean, yeah, the question is, you know, when was the book of Genesis written? That's the, the bigger question here. And that's, it's a pretty complicated answer, I think. There's, there's a lot of evidence in the text of Genesis that gives us a, a complex picture of it. To start with, the book of Genesis doesn't tell us itself who wrote it. There's no byline, there's no, you know, this is written by Abraham's, you know, grandson or something, like a family history. Like, we don't get anything like that. What we do get is the rest of the Bible refers to Genesis as one of the books of Moses. So the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Jesus says, you know, he talks about Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So he's wrapping up the book of Genesis in this collection written by Moses. And Moses lived 400-something years after Abraham, so we're a bit further down the track. There are other verses in Genesis, though, that suggest there's even later kind of authorial like activity, like later people writing this. So you get in Genesis 14... Abraham chases the the four kings who've captured Lot. He chases them as far as Dan, I think. Have you got the reference there, Mike? It's something like that. Oh, there's there's some verse somewhere where it talks about Dan. And it sort of suggested more tribal, uh, the, the, the land broken up by a tribe. Yeah, that's right, because you get this note. It's in... Yeah, 1414. Yeah, 1414. He goes as, pursues as far as Dan, which is this town like right up in the north of the land of Israel. But in the book of... It's either Joshua or Judges. I don't have the reference in front of me, but... There's a verse that talks about how the Israelites actually, they capture this city called Laish and they rename it Dan. And that only happens like way after Abraham. That's down in like the, after Moses even, that's in kind of Joshua's time. So that tells you that whatever the the final form of the book of Genesis we have in front of us, uh, Moses didn't, you know, dot every I and cross every T, so to speak. There's this later kind of final version that's written for some Israelites after that. So, I mean, bring that together, I think the picture you get is Moses wrote the bulk of the book of Genesis. He's the one who has done the, the hard yards and, and gathered the stories about Abraham and his sons and the people of Israel. And Moses actually wrote a lot of what God said to him. You see that throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. You see Moses writing stuff down. But then some um, later uh, author, editor, guided by the Holy Spirit, has kind of put the finishing touches on it for the people of his day. And that's the book of Genesis as we have it today. So when that actually is, I, I don't think we have a clear answer on that, but sometime after Moses, after the, the Israelites actually in the, the land of Israel, sometime in the, the time of the kings, I think is probably the best answer to when that today is. Okay. Three questions to kind of wrap us up. We'll try and move a little quicker here. Um, uh, question about hell. Um, if I have friends who are not Christian, will they go to hell? Um, just picking up on talking about hell in light of mm. what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah, and mm. should I be scared of hell? Yeah, the Bible's pretty clear. Um, uh, if you believe in Jesus, you have life eternal, and heaven and all its riches awaits you. 
but if you say no to Jesus, uh, then you still have hell and judgment awaiting you. And that should scare the living daylights out of us, particularly in light of Genesis 19, where we see something of the justice and the judgment of God. And it's horrific, and we should be scared. And it should drive us to want to love our friends so much that we share the gospel of Jesus with them so they can um, receive heaven rather than hell. And it should drive us to pray for these people also that God would do that miracle of softening hearts and bringing people from darkness to light. Yeah, I think if you believe in Jesus, then that yeah, that's all true. But if you believe in Jesus, you have nothing to fear, as well. So it's kind of a paradox. Like we should fear, we should fear God and fear His judgment and fear the the power of the one who will mm. destroy the world and and judge people forever. And even Jesus says that He says Matthew eight, sorry Matthew ten twenty eight. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Mm. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But mm. The paradox is, if you fear God, you have nothing to fear. Because the one who fears God and who humbles themselves before Jesus is saved and will be saved on that last day. And Paul says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Heaven and hell are real. Mm. Jesus is the only saviour. Nice. The question here, uh, just trying to modernise, I guess, get a bit of context around this. Um, there might be a, a modern day equivalent of, of Sodom and Gomorrah around Sydney. Um, I'm not sure where this has come from, but someone's uh, written in Bondi Beach is very rich. Uh, will God destroy it? <laughs> yeah, I think I kind of like the picture, like the way that Jesus talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in that Luke 17 reference that Mike and I both talked about on Sunday. It talks about, oh, you know, like it'll be like in Sodom how people were buying and selling and eating and drinking and just going about their business. Maybe if there's anywhere in Sydney that is like Sodom, Bondi Beach is not a bad point, you know. Like, people will be hanging out there in the surf, having an ice cream, kicking back on the sand, you know, enjoying life, enjoying what seems to be this, you know, good, perfect place. Like, a lot of people at Bondi, I know, feel like they live in heaven on earth. But the point was, in Sodom, people were just going about their business on the day when the fire fell. And what Jesus says is that this whole world is, is going to be facing up to that. Bondi will be destroyed by fire just as much as Sodom was, just as much as Carlingford will be, just as much as every square inch of dirt on this world will be. So, g'day, everyone listening from Bondi. We love you. <laughs> um, sorry to pick on you. It's just the question that came up. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, again, we've got to trust that God's going to do the right thing and that God will save the righteous who are in Christ and he will judge the wicked. And so if the if there's wickedness in Bondi, then they're going to be judged for it. But again, it should drive us to tears and drive us to prayer. Mm. Because it's not postcode specific. It's, it's as Jack said, the whole, uh, the present earth and the present heavens are reserved for, for judgment by fire and destruction. It's quite a, a scary and terrifying uh, thought. But again, yeah. Jesus is the saviour. Mm. Last one for today. Um, Mike, you took us to 1 Corinthians 6 um, uh, in the sermons that you preached. And uh, we talked about a whole bunch of things there. and put, Putting the old life to death. It's, it's to no longer be part of the new life for the Christian who follows Jesus. Um, the questions come in in that description in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. There's nothing about taking drugs. Um, all sorts of other sins um, are, are mentioned there. But drug taking, absent. Um, would it be okay, do you think, for someone to, for example, smoke some weed, assuming that it's legal and they did it in small amounts? Is, 
is that okay? Yeah, so 1 Corinthians 6, it's not an exhaustive list of every sin that you could commit. It was uh, obviously some of the sins that the Christians in Corinth were bringing with them from their old life into their new life. Um, And so drugs aren't part of that list. Uh, Elsewhere in Scripture, drugs mentioned? Not sure. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a verse that singles them out particularly. I mean, the Bible says lots about alcohol, and there's... Um, analogies there in terms of how alcohol and other depressant-type drugs affect our mind and cause us to lose control, cause us to you know lose our grip with reality. Yeah. The way the New Testament emphasizes self-control, I think, makes those kinds of things a problem for Christians. Like I take it that's why the New Testament tells you don't get drunk, don't get yourself into this chemical state where you're not able to be self-controlled and to, to live a godly life. Yeah, so Ephesians 5 talks about being led by the Spirit rather than by being drunk, therefore led by wine. Um, so we want to be people who are led by the Spirit. And anything that uh, affects that or hinders that is to be avoided. And I take it drugs falls into that category. But there's, there's something else in 1 Corinthians 6, isn't there, Jack, that might mm. be helpful on this topic as well? Yeah, it's interesting. The very next verse after verse 9 to 11, which Mike pointed us to, so verse six, sorry, verse 12 I have the right to do anything, you say. That's what the Corinthians were saying to Paul. They were saying, yeah, like, you know, we're, we're free. We're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. And Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. So his point is, yeah, like, you know, things might be legal. Things might be possible. It might not be, you know, against the letter of the law to smoke marijuana. But that doesn't mean it's good. And I think, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but everything that I've ever read about marijuana suggests to me it's a pretty terrible thing. Like, you know, I'm sure it probably feels pretty fun at the time i guess that's why people did it so much but it's the long-term health effects of it like the i mean the mental health effects particularly of marijuana can be pretty awful and i don't think there's any um suggestion that that's a, a good and wise way for christians to spend their time on earth god's put us here to take the gospel to people who need to hear it so that they can be saved from hell uh, if we're just you know poisoning our minds and destroying our bodies so that we're less able to do that i don't think that's something that glorifies god so even if it's only a small amount, even if it is legal, the question for 1 Corinthians 6, is it helpful Yeah. in terms of us being disciples of Jesus and making disciples of Jesus? And I think we'd have to say no. I think so. so. Yeah, so when God appears as a pillar of smoke, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. No, <sorry> <laughs> Guys, that, that's it for questions for today. Thanks, Heath, for your work. Uh, just quickly before we wrap up, we're heading into the... Next chunk of Genesis in chapters uh, 20, 21 this week. Where, where are we going? Yeah, Genesis 20 is deja vu. You'll read it and you'll think, I've heard this before. Mm. And that's kind of the point. Um, and then in Genesis 21, we get... We get a birthday. Woohoo! This is celebration time. The, the long-promised child is finally here. Very exciting. Isaac shows up. Yeah, nice. Okay, so we're looking at fulfillment of the promise and seeing it all come about. Um, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, that's exciting. Uh, so stay tuned for that. That's this coming Sunday at church. Thanks heaps for your questions. Keep them mm. rolling in. They're very, very, very helpful. Mike, Jack, thank you for your work today. And uh, we'll see you all at church on Sunday. Have a great week. See you then. Bye.